Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 247, Writing Byzantine Fiction with Gordon Doherty. Today we have an interview with historical fiction author Gordon Doherty. I was going through Audible's catalogue of books a couple of years ago to see what Byzantine fiction they had, and I was surprised to see a book called Stratigos which, as you know, is uh, the Byzantine word for general. Um, the historical fiction that I'd seen before that was either about Justinian or even earlier periods, or about the Crusades or 1453 itself. To see something set in the middle Byzantine period was really exciting, and I eagerly listened to the book. Stratikos, Born in the Borderlands, is actually the first book in a trilogy following the story of Appian, a Roman boy with a mysterious past and a complicated future. Gordon will tell you more about the plot in our interview, but it's set in the build-up to the Battle of Manzikert, and it seems clear that Appian will have a part to play in the drama. I'm very happy to recommend the book, and so I was pleased to sit down across a Zoom call with Gordon and ask him questions about it. But we also talked about his career in general, and what advice he'd give to other writers of historical fiction. Um, I know many of you have thought about uh, writing something in the past or are in the midst of writing your own book about Byzantium or other periods of history. So I think you'll really enjoy hearing about Gordon's journey and the insights he has to offer. Also, stay tuned after the interview to find out how you can win a free copy of the book. Or, if you want to listen to the book, uh, you can also get that for free if you're signing up for the first time at audible.com. Now, here's the interview. Hello, Gordon Doherty. Welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hello, Robin. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, tell the listeners, let's start with a bit about yourself and your background, and then how you came to write historical fiction. Okay, so well, I was born <clears throat> and raised in Scotland, and here I remain, uh, right at the, what is actually the, the northern edge of the Roman Empire. So 
right now sitting in my writing office, I'm about an arrow shot away from the Antonine Wall. So that's a pretty evocative location. <laughs> um, yeah, my, the, the writing journey uh, towards historical fiction. So <laughs> it depends how far you want me to go back. But let's, okay, so I could say the starting point was when I was a, a boy seven years old and I was struck down with chicken pox. So I had to spend a couple of weeks in bed, as you do, feeling rotten. But fortunately, somebody gave me a big stack of books, uh, including the complete Chronicles of Narnia. So I spent the two weeks essentially devouring that series and it was thanks to thanks to that and the, the other books I read that I, I didn't feel half of the, the pain of chicken pox. It was just the, it, it taught me the, the magic and escapism, firstly, of reading. It was shortly after that that it came to me, you know, what, what would happen if I actually tried to write my own stories, if I picked up a pen? It's only now, reflecting back on that, that I realise that that was kind of the, the door opening. Uh, you know, picking up a pen and writing stories you effectively become a magician, you know, the person that creates the magic. And that was just like a, a mind-blowing uh, revelation. Um, you know, to understand that you're not confined to the world around us, your imagination can take you anywhere. So that was the kind of the start of being a reader, then becoming a, a very, very uh, kind of basic writer when I was, when I was little writing short stories and sometimes just cartoons and things, you know, simple things. As I grew up, I did the sensible thing and got a career in information technology. Very, very, very quickly got bored of that and came back around to writing, just as a hobby in my spare time. But also, at the same time, I got heavily into reading uh, history and particularly historical fiction. Sometimes sneakily during the day job, uh, it doesn't matter if my old manager is listening because I am no longer in that day job. <laughs> so yeah, it's, all of this converged and this, this was in my early 20s. And I felt this great compulsion to write one of those magical historical fiction adventures that I so much enjoyed reading. And that's where it all began, really. I, I kind of had, from the kind of childlike short stories and so on, I tried to move on to um, some of the great topics of history that I'd read about. And how hard was it to become a published author? It, it wasn't, put it this way, it wasn't the route I expected to take. So I went through hundreds, probably, of, of rejections, um, and I understand why, because the, the earliest stuff I wrote was, uh, you know, it had spirit, gusto and so on. It just didn't have the, the finesse, you know, the experience right there. But I, I learned through the kind of the hardship of that, I guess, uh, to, to refine and understand the, the flaws in my own work, to kind of hone my craft a little bit. And then, you know, I thought, okay, still, I'm not getting a, a bite from a publisher here. But around the same time, the self-publishing boom happened. This was 2010, 2011, roughly. And I thought, well, I've got, I've got to try 
to start somewhere. I, I, gave, it a, I gave it a shot with my, my debut novel, Legionary. Um, it's a, a late woman adventure that went into the, the self-publishing machine and completely blew my socks off. I, I did not expect what happened, but it happened. People loved it and wanted more. And that just changed my life. And I'm so grateful for it. It's a brilliant profession. I'm able to write for a living. So the title of that book, Legionary, gives us a clue that you were um, headed in a Roman direction. Um, what eventually led you towards Byzantium as a subject for fiction? I was late Rome at first, um, and then I was kind of lured down the route towards Byzantium. And it's a similar situation to the chicken box. This was insomnia uh, back in 2004, I think. Out of the blue, I just suffered several weeks of bad sleep. Um, but fortunately, I had next to my bed Byzantium, the early centuries, the book by John Julius Norwich. I'd been meaning to read it for some time, and I was hoping, like any book, you know, I'll read a few pages and I'll drift off to sleep. And the opposite happened. I was absolutely riveted, absolutely riveted. It's something about uh, Norwich's style. It reminds me a lot of the podcast. It's you know it's history, but it reads like narrative fiction. You've got everything you could want. It's tales of love, and war, treachery, disaster, triumph, and all spiced up with some really gruesome accounts of eye gouging and nose slitting and all these lovely things that the Byzantines did to each other. So yeah, there was I, I didn't get any sleep that night at all and then the next night and I, I wasn't bothered about that I was you know quite happy to yeah, to have enjoyed my, my read and then the next night carried on the same and I, I devoured the whole Norwich trilogy it's the early centuries the apogee and the decline and fall so yeah my head was just bursting with ideas about the rise and fall of Byzantium you know it was People say it's not really Byzantium, it's the, it's the Roman Empire, which is very true. It's the continuation after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So it really wasn't a, a change of subject for me, it was a continuation of a subject that I already loved. Um, so I just I knew then, if I'm going to write any historical fiction, it has to be set somewhere in the long and twisting tale of Byzantium. It has to be there. Yeah, I I read Norwich myself, so I can I can well imagine what what led you past all the stories all the way to the eleventh uh, century. Well, so I actually first stumbled upon uh, an early choice of the seventh century mm. as the setting, and the Emperor Heraclius as the protagonist. That was the first thing that actually snagged. Um, and I even, I think I actually wrote about roughly half a novel about Heraclius coming of age and his adventures, you know, roving deep into Susanid Persia. And the thing is, this was my <clears throat> still very early days as a, a writer. Um, and I, I think looking back on it, that attempt was more of an experiment, a kind of craft honing thing again. But I, you know, I realised... It didn't deter me from uh, 
finding, finding my niche in the, the Byzantine uh, landscape. And so I, I, I part to Heraclius to thinking, okay, I've, I've kind of played with that. But uh, it's about a year or so afterwards, I was attending a, a really well-led night course about the history of the Crusades. So as <clears throat> hugely interesting as the Crusades themselves are, I was more captivated by the events that were described in the East, the events that laid the stage for the Crusades, namely the goings-on in 11th century Byzantium, Anatolia and Syria. So this, this was an age when, the, you know, as you have described, when the expanding Selyuk Sultanate was beginning to press up and encroach upon what was a time-served but gradually more inward-looking Byzantine Empire. And all of this pressure would eventually lead to the infamous and bloody Battle of Manzikert. So, you know, while the Battle of Manzikert, um, for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's, well, it wasn't a, an apocalyptic or catastrophic battle. It was pretty bloody and most definitely what I would describe as catalytic in that it the result of the battle triggered the decline of Byzantium and kind of ushered in the Crusade era. And that that fact just struck me as, you know, this is such a pivotal period in history. And I tried to imagine myself as a like a living, breathing person in those times. And it was at that, at that moment that the, the idea for the Strategos trilogy was born. Fantastic. So I talked a little bit about um, the first book, uh, Stratigos, Born in the Borderlands, in our introduction. But um, it's a trilogy focusing on a young Roman man named Appian. And Appian is dealing with kind of physical and psychological scars from the past, and he's facing an uncertain future. And without spoiling too much, um, there's there's a, a prophetic element to the story story has a sort of almost like a fantasy element to it i don't think i'm spoiling too much this is historical fiction but um i'm very interested in what drew you towards those um prophetic elements in the story um one of which is the the haga the the two-headed eagle symbol which people are familiar with from byzantium um can you tell the listeners a little bit more about those elements of the story Sure, so yeah, it's, it's primarily historical fiction. Yeah, there is a, a definite dash of fantasy in there. And that comes from probably one of my greatest influences, David Gemmell. So he's primarily known for heroic fantasy fiction. But some of my favourite works of his, those in which he tackles history, it's just like a vein of fantasy. For example, Line of Macedon, that's a, an amazing book that follows Alexander's general, Parmenian. And that's just a, a masterpiece in that respect. It's solid, brilliantly told history with a, a real kind of dash of mystique and fantasy in there to just lift it. And I think that's what it is, really, is that just the right kind of sprinkling of a fantasy element can really can really lift and colourise fiction. And just to be clear, by 
a dash of fantasy. I'm, I'm talking about things like dreams, prophecies, and maybe what you would call familiars, you know, people that are only visible to characters, as opposed to outright wizards, magic, dragons, that yes. kind of thing. Well, I should, I should say for the mm-hmm. listeners' benefit that the elements you've put in are elements you see the edge of in Roman histories. That, that we've just been dealing with Manuel Komnenos, who had a great interest in astrology, and almost all historians indulge in the kind of stories that grow up after an event where they say, oh, there was a man who predicted this would all happen. And then the king dismissed him and didn't listen to him. And then it all came true. So, like, it, it feels very Byzantine, the elements you've put in, I should uh, I should underline. Yeah, I mean, that's the way to look at it. It's a, it's a human thing. We, we all dream. We all have our superstitions and our kind of retrospective prophecies, as you say. Um, and and we, we all well maybe just I but I think other pe- people too we often talk to people who aren't really there you know lost loved ones for example so these kind of what we term fantasy elements are they're all within the realms of the human psyche um, and yeah the so when we come to the the Haga symbol in particular so the Haga for anyone who's <clears throat> and familiar, that's the an emblem of a, a, a two-headed eagle, wings outspread. And it's a, a very ancient symbol that's been used throughout history. So, for example, the, the as you may well know, the Byzantine Kononos dynasty, the, the Holy Roman Empire, the House of Romanov, and even on the modern Albanian flag, they're all emblazoned with versions of the Haga, the two-headed eagle. And even way, way back in the Bronze Age, in Anatolia, the Haga symbol was used by the Hittite Empire, supposedly as a sign of power and dominance over the land. And they carved this symbol into their, their city and fortress walls and in places on prominent points in the countryside, high up on cliffs and so on. And I, I was just captivated by the idea that some 2,500 years later, roughly 2,500, yeah, in the 11th century AD, the heroes of Strategos might look up and see one of these majestic old haggard reliefs on a cliff face. Now that was just spine-tingling to think of. And there is a, a symbolic element to it as well. It's not just the historical basis of the Haggis symbol. So, in terms of in terms of symbolism, the Haggah practically chose itself uh, for the trilogy because it, it represents the core theme of the story, that is of personal and cultural conflict. So, to explain, uh, the first book, uh, Born in the Borderlands, set in the, the Byzantine border theme of Shaldia, that's roughly Pontic Turkey, the region in the north, mid-north of Turkey. Uh, and the, it's set in the middle of the century when Byzantine Seleuk tensions are beginning to boil over. And the personal aspect of that conflict is seen through the eyes of Appian, our hero. So Appian's a, he's a Byzantine boy who, who's been badly injured and orphaned 
after his parents were murdered by a salient raiding party. So coinless, his home's been burnt down and everything, he ends up falling into slavery and being taken to a grubby tavern in Trebizond, the Chaldean capital. So he's got every right, given what's happened to him, to have carry some sort of hatred for the Seleucs, even if it's not irrational. You can understand why he might do that. But all his prejudices in this respect are challenged when one day an old Seleuc named Mansur comes to Trebizond and buys Appian from the tavern keeper. So Appian's at first suspicious and anxious, unsure of what Mansur has in mind for him. But when they arrive at Mansur's home, that's a farm out in the borderlands, right on the Seleuc Byzantium fault line, he realises that he's actually got nothing to fear. The farm's idyllic. Mansur treats him like a son, teaches him to hunt, to harvest, how to play chatrange, that's uh, an early form of what we call chess, and he helps him to overcome his debilitating injuries from the night of the raid. And Appian comes to love Mansur like a father, and he even falls for Mansur's daughter. But all the while, the, the tensions between the Byzantine Empire and the Seleucid Sultanate are mounting. And almost daily, Appian sees Imperial Tima cavalry squadrons riding urgently to and fro across the land. The thing is, this is where the conflict comes in. He's the personal conflict. He's torn within because if he was to go to serve in that war, for which side would he fight? He's a soldier. Because he has Byzantine blood, but he's found a loving Selmuk family. So this is a bit of a, a, a scenic route to get to the, the answer to the question, but in, in this respect, this is where the Haga represents Appian, and that the, with the, the Haga's two heads are like Appian's two minds and torn loyalties. So, <laughs> excellent. Um, well, we encourage everyone to read the book and to find out more. Um, well, let's talk about the the strict history part. Um, can you tell the listeners about the kind of research you had to do in order to write about daily life in Byzantium and uh, and daily life in the army? Sure. So primarily being based in Scotland and primarily an armchair researcher, not completely at all as I love Turkey and go there as often as possible. Not in the last few years, unfortunately, given events, but um, with the pandemic, etc. But yeah, in terms of my bookshelves, uh, obviously John Julius Norwich was the, the spark, and he, he laid out the grand arc of events wonderfully for me. Um, and I then turned to the chronicler Michael Italiatis. So he was, his history was basically my Bible for the specific goings on of the, the middle 11th century and specifically the Manzikert campaign. Even though not everything he, he, he says is to be fully trusted, and to be honest, that's often the beauty of history in these panegyrics and uh, invectives and so on that you, you find that they're loaded with agenda. 
and that's uh, that's really good uh, fodder for a, a writer. <laughs> um, and I, in terms of finding out about army life, uh, I found that the I was quite surprised by this, but the, at the time, but the, the strategic one of Morris dates from the fifth century, so it was several centuries old by the time of Strategos, but. It's still largely held good in terms of the, the basis of military tenets of Appian's time. Obviously, not strictly uh, unchanged or anything, but it was, you know, it was the kind of white sauce for military practice even then. Uh, but I, I found that this, you know, there were insights into the developments that had happened since then, uh, covered well by the works of. Gold, Alden and Angold, uh, they covered the more uh, recent kind of military developments by the likes of uh, Basil II, uh, you know, the, the super heavy cavalry of that era and, and the advances in, in warfare and, and techniques. Um, and then there's the, in terms of visual inspiration, you can never go wrong with the, the Austria series uh, for I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're basically packed with detail, uh, text and detail on tables and so on, but wonderful illustrations too. You know, it was a, a mix of, of, of very dry history and very, very juicy history and artwork and things like the, the Orbis engine. Uh, now that, that's a, a map engine. You can find it online just by Googling it. And it gives you a layout of the uh, the, the Roman world, and you can pick any two points, any two cities or forts or major locations between it and work out the, the journey route and journey time for a typical transit between two places, and it gives you, you know, authentic details of whether most, the most likely route would have been by sea, by horse, by, you know, by wagon, whatever, by foot. It gives you an estimate of how long it would have taken, so you, know, you can add that authenticity to your, your your campaigns and so on, or your your messenger riders getting from one place to another. How long would it take, etc.? But the the highlight, the, the really the most exciting part was the, the regular trips to Turkey. So I'd, I'd go there to add the, the colour and spice and realism to the world of Strathmore's. You know, just having things like like seeing the, the colours of the sky and the soil, the, the smell of the heat and the sound of the cicadas, and that's just wonderful. And I, I even went, um, so Appian takes up running as a way to get past his physical ailments, and I, uh, I decided to go for a little run in Turkey. I'm a keen runner in the UK, but let me tell you, running in 40 degree heat is something else entirely. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting, I can imagine. And of course, you'd already written books in the Roman period, so you were no stranger to researching and getting in the mindset by that point. Well, I only know what they've got up to in book one. I am looking forward to reading books two and three in the trilogy. Uh, do you think you'd be able to give a spoiler-free hint of where the story might be going for to, to entice listeners? Sure, sure. So, yeah, book one, uh, Born in the Borderlands, 
Now that's all about Appian's coming of age and military ascension. Book two, Rise of the Golden Heart. Uh, this is all about, about um, news of Appian's military exploits drawing the attentions of the imperial court. So think about the likes of the widow, the widow Eudokia, Michael Selos, and the Ducas dynasty back in Constantinople. They've begun to hear about Appian's uh, triumphs and, and uh, adventures in the borderlands. So he is, he finds himself summoned to Constantinople. There he's drawn into a lethal game of espionage. He must, he's got to attempt to thwart conspirators who are plotting to try to prevent Romanus Theothenes, the, the golden heart, as I call him, from the title of the book. Uh, they're trying to prevent him from inheriting the imperial throne. So only with, the, with this, with Romanus safely on the throne, can the empire hope to meet the urgent threat of Alparslan and the Seleuk Sultanate who by this time are, are swelling and ready for a renewed assault in Byzantine lands. So that's the, the gist of book two. And then book three, Island in the Storm, takes Appian to the place in the moment that changed Byzantine and arguably world history forever, Manzikert. Well, I definitely encourage uh, listeners to check out the uh, the book series. Um there is a gordondoherty.co.uk if you want to uh, buy the books from there. And uh, you also have my Audible link uh, if you'd like to listen to uh, book one as I did. Um, Gordon, can you tell us about some of you, the other books you've written and uh, that listeners might be interested to check out at your website? Sure. So as mentioned before, the, it's the Legionary series, that's set in Thrace in the 4th century AD. It tells the story of the 11th Claudia. Now, they're a once great legion, raised many centuries before by Julius Caesar, another man. Uh, but they're now, the, Cla- the Claudia now find themselves reduced to a status of a, an impoverished border or guard unit. However, they will be, will find themselves vital in what is to come. Because this is the age when the Huns have begun their surge from the Stetlands, pushing a multitude of Germanic and Syrian tribes towards the Empire's borders. So that's that's the, the Legionary series. Then there's the, the Empire's Bronze series. That's set way back in 1300 BC. So it tells the story of the mighty Hittite Empire. So these were an ancient people, the ancient people who carved the Hagia reliefs, as I mentioned earlier, around Anatolia. Um, they were a, an absolute superpower of the Bronze Age, going toe-to-toe with Pharaoh Ramesses II's Egypt and the Assyrians and the Greeks of Agamemnon. And, um, and, and this, this series tells the, the final decades of the Hittite Empire. The Bronze Age is such a strange time because it's so different to our idea of civilization, and the, the Hittites are particularly strange. For example, we had this tradition where if a, a husband and wife weren't getting on with some sort of marital dispute, 
an oracle or a wise woman, as they called, they called them, would get the husband and wife together and advise them both to spit in the mouth of a sheep. So that's one rather odd tradition of yours. <laughs> but the, so the story of the Empires of Bronze, it follows the adventures of a, a general prince named Hattusilus. And we know of him from the excavated Hittite tablets. And the story takes in some legendary moments from history, the Battle of Kadesh, the Trojan War, and the truly catastrophic Bronze Age collapse. And then one other series for, again, for Roman fans, Rise of Emperors, is co-written by myself and my friend Simon Turney. And it tells the tale of Constantine the Great and his bitter rival, Maxentius. The trilogy is set around the build-up to and the execution of the famous Battle of the Melvian Bridge, another watershed moment in history. Fantastic. Um, I'm interested in uh, co-authoring there and what that's like. Perhaps you could talk a bit about that uh, with a nice broad question to finish. Um, I get messages from people every few months or so who, who are contemplating writing Byzantine fiction um, as someone who's written a lot and had success um, <laughs> and not wanting to um, make you talk for too long, but what advice would you give to someone who's starting from scratch um, if they want to, to have some success as a historical fiction writer? Um, I suppose at the core of it, a historical fiction writer is primarily a writer. And the earliest pieces of advice that worked for me were in a more broader, generic landscape of how to write, as opposed to how to write historical fiction. And so one, one thing I would say is most definitely be yourself. So to explain, in, in my early days, I tried too hard to imitate the authors I liked. For example, David Gemmell. It was fun. It just wasn't authentic. And my wife, who's also my chief editor, she pointed this out to me. And it was plain as day when she had. And this totally changed how I approached things. So while I'm, I'm still definitely influenced by other authors, I always tell my stories my way, and that makes a massive difference. It makes it your story. You know. And the other thing I'd say is, if you're just starting out, overreaching is, is something that's a, a common pitfall. So you, you don't need to start by writing a great American novel. Flash fiction is a perfect place to start. That could be just a flash fiction, could be like a paragraph on a page, no more than that. Just a bite-sized uh, project. It's, you know, it's a really rapid and powerful way to understand and to tame the, the raw emotions that come out when you first try to write. If you can get a handle on them within a, a page or a paragraph, that will stand you in very good stead, good stead for later, longer works. Um, yeah, you mentioned as well the, the co-authoring thing and 
in relevance to that, that, you know, writing is a very solitary profession. And many introverted people like me might be drawn to writing for that very reason. But trust me, go forth and make friends with fellow writers. You can't fail to learn from them. And they from you. But just look at what my friendship with Simon Tommy resulted in, the published trilogy, as mentioned, what a result that was. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of historical fiction in particular, it's, you know, I, I guess you've got to have a, a love of detail, but also, also an understanding that you, know, you want to have a broad appeal as well. You want you don't want to put readers off by being too much of a stickler for detail, by overloading your prose with every single <clears throat> mention of a, an attested inscription in every wall that your character walks past. Or you know, it's it's got to be done at a level that keeps it interesting but pacey and accessible and you know Im immersive without being overpoweringly historical, if that makes sense. Definitely. And I can attest that Stratigos, born in the borderlands, definitely lives up to that. Um, well, I'm sure anyone seeking more advice will track you down <laughs> and ask you more questions. And uh, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom with us. Yeah, and, and thank you so much once again, Robin, for having me on. And please keep up the good work with the podcast. Thank you so much. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, we're running a competition where you can win book one from the Stratigos trilogy, signed by Gordon Doherty himself. We thought we'd go with a creative question rather than a factual one for this competition. So to win the book, tell us which period of Byzantine history you wish you could time travel to and why. Go to gordondoherty.co.uk and submit your answers on the contact page, and Gordon will judge which is the most interesting or creative answer, and will announce the winner at the end of May, which is the deadline for answers. If you prefer to listen to books and somehow have not joined audible.com yet, then why not sign up via my link, audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium. You get a free month of Audible service, including the chance to keep Stratigos born in the Borderlands forever. And there are also exclusive Audible podcasts you can listen to, as well as the chance to buy other books from Audible's humongous catalogue. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium to sign up. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.